Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Seems like we just heard that phrase just a few moments ago. So now if you were paying attention, you know this comes from the book of Philippians. We often refer to our gospel writer Luke as a physician. But you know what? He's also a gifted author and a wonderful historian. If you dig into his writings, and specifically just the first few verses of our lesson for today, you can see how wonderfully and masterfully he sets the stage for the arrival of Jesus and John and both of their ministries in Israel. Luke begins his gospel by alternating events between talking about John and talking about Jesus. John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin. So after his very short dedication to Theophilus in the first chapter, Luke begins to write about different things. First, he predicts John's birth, and then about the prediction of Jesus' birth. Next, we hear about Jesus' mother Mary visiting John's mother Elizabeth. And finally, he tells of John's birth, followed by Jesus' birth. Of the account of John's birth, this is what Luke says about him. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And then after the account of Jesus' birth, this is what Luke said about Jesus. And he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. And so now in today's text, we fast forward 30 years, Luke is introducing the ministry, the formal ministry of John the Baptist. And not John the Baptist, of course, sets the stage for Jesus, the Messiah of the Israelites. Now because Luke is such a careful historian, he, he puts together those pieces, all of those pieces of history, puts them together kind of like a puzzle that when complete will set the stage and scene fully for Jesus to come on and Jesus' ministry. So the rest of the time today we're going to spend talking about various settings or scenes or contexts so that we can understand better how much is really involved in what Luke is sharing with us. There's so much more there than just the Christmas story. There's so much historical, theological, vocational, and one other setting as well. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is the historical setting. Luke has given us in the first verse and a half, just the first verse and a half, seven names so that his readers can better understand, okay, where are we in the political scene? Where are we in the historical scene? He knows that his readers are going to be interested in where we are starting. And so we read in the first verse and a half. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Wow, a bunch of names. Now friends, the broad overstroke of this whole time in, Jew, in the Jews' life was that it was a tough time to live under a Roman oppression as a Jew in Israel. Augustus, the first Roman emperor, was Caesar at the time when Jesus was born. And when Augustus died, Tiberius Caesar became the Roman emperor, the second Roman emperor. And so the verse says, 
the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, making it A.D. 29. So all of a sudden, Luke has established where exactly in time and history we are. We're at A.D. 29. We read more from the gospel authors and other extra-biblical texts, and we find out that life in Israel at this time was utterly miserable for the Jews. And we're going to talk more about that later. But Tiberius Caesar, that very first name, he was not a good guy. He was involved in treason and sedition. He was a pagan who promoted himself as nothing less than a god. It was said of him that he was cruel, self-centered, narcissistic, egotistic, and a megalomaniac. Talk about something to put on your tombstone. Wow. Can't get much worse than that. But just wait. <laughs> the second name Luke gives us is Pontius Pilate. We know a little bit about Pontius Pilate, right? We know he was governor of Judea. Now, it's helpful to understand and keep in mind that the Roman emperors split up the lands that they had conquered into all these various regions. And then they put people to govern those regions. They would appoint them or they would approve them to be in those positions. So Pontius Pilate ruled that region around Jerusalem, including the city itself. Pontius Pilate, he was no great guy either. He had a reputation of being self-willed and wicked. One writer says of his rule that it was characterized by briberies, robberies, frequent executions without trial, and endless savageness. And of course we know his involvement in Jesus' crucifixion. The third name we run across is Herod, another name that we're pretty familiar with. It says that he was a tetrarch of Galilee. Literally, the word tetrarch means one of four. Each Roman province was split up into four pieces. Each tetrarch was then in control of one quarter of a province. This Herod, Herod Antipas, was son of Herod the Great, who ruled when Jesus and John were both born. This Herod today that Luke is talking about, Herod Antipas and his father, were Edomians or also known as Edomites. That's another name that we might associate with them. The Edomites were descended from the tribe of Esau. If you don't remember that, Esau was the brother of Jacob, son of Isaac. And so Esau's line were not of the Jewish faith. They were Gentiles. They were pagans, really. And so it was this Herod, Herod Antipas, who was involved in the death of both John and Jesus. The Jews absolutely despised Herod Antipas because he was so wicked. He did many things, but one of the things that stuck in their craw was he built a city in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar, and he called it, of course, Tiberius, the city that's there today on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's nothing wrong with devoting something to someone that you look up to, except for that he built that city on a Jewish cemetery, and that was a no-no. Herod also did such things as putting idols in public places, as well as even the temple grounds themselves. The fourth name that Luke mentions is Herod's brother, Philip, one of, four, one of the other four sons of Herod the Great. Philip was tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, which is northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And while all of Herod the Great's sons were bad, including Herod the Great himself, we might say that Philip was probably the best of the bad ones, primarily because we don't know a whole lot about Philip and what he actually did. The fifth name that Luke tells us about is Lysanias. Well, that's an interesting name. I never really thought much of that before. He was Tetrarch of Abilene, which maybe you thought was in Texas, but it's not. It's in Galilee. 
Now I want to pause for just a moment and talk about these five names that we've heard of so far. We know that Tiberius Caesar rules the entire known Roman Empire at that time. He had supreme rule over everyone. And then Luke gives us four petty governors. And he says it's important to note that all of these, Caesar, all of his governors, those in authority, they're all Gentiles. They're all pagans. They're not Jews. They are sinful and wicked to one degree or another, and they do not know the God of Israel. And it's these wicked Gentiles who held supreme power over the chosen people of God, the Jews. The Jews were living under a foreign occupation. They were oppressed. They were in bondage to what some say were the most powerful, most perverse, most petty, most idolatrous Gentiles to have ever walked on the planet. The Jews were certainly not living in the covenant promises that God had made to the people over the years and over the centuries. No, far from that. Their lives were not good. But if you think the Gentiles were bad, let's talk about the last two names that Luke gives us. He says that this all happened during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, this is fascinating if you think about it, because from the time of Moses, there was supposed to be one high priest and only one high priest. And it was only he that got to go into the, the inner temple, inner sanctum, and he had specific duties and responsibilities, but only one. So what's going on here? Why is Luke sharing this and why is it important? Well, God originally established the one high priest and that that one high priest would always be from the sons of Levi. Our text from Malachi even spoke of the sons of Levi, the priesthood. But during the Roman rule, you know what they had done? They had decided to ignore the Levitical line and they instead appointed people that they thought would be good for the job. Now, during the Roman occupation of Israel, and not only with these priests, but others, the Romans were the ones who approved and appointed the high priest. Historians believe that this office of the high priest was either sold to the highest bidder or was granted as some sort of political favor by the Romans for something that they had done for the Romans. And so we begin to see that the real power in Jerusalem over God's people did not come directly from Tiberius Caesar, nor from the four governors underneath. It came from the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. The most powerful leaders in the Jewish structure was that high priest. And he was the real power in the Jewish lives because he represented God to the Jewish folks. The high priesthood had been established and ordained by God, so the people were to submit their lives to him and his leadership. Now, the Gentile leaders, for sure, did terrible things during this time. But it was nothing in comparison to what the Jewish rulers were doing to the people. Annas was high priest from A.D. 7 to A.D. 14, rapidly succeeded by several of his sons, finally to his son-in-law Caiaphas, he became the high priest in A.D. 17 and retained that title until well after John and Jesus are gone from the biblical text. So Luke is highlighting for us by saying during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, all these things are happening. He's really telling us who's in power here. It's the Romans. And it's also Annas and not Caiaphas. 
To give you an example, when the Jews arrested Jesus three and a half years later, they take him not first to Caiaphas, the high priest, they take him to Annas first. It says so in John 18. So these two men, Annas and Caiaphas, they had been installed basically as puppets of Rome. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about God's people. All they cared about was themselves, their power, their position, and retaining that position. And of course, the steady stream of income that came in from the temple prophets. I could do a whole sermon series on the temple and what that meant for not only the Jewish leadership, but as well as the Romans in Jerusalem. But we just don't have time for that. Suffice it to say, they wanted to keep their position to keep the money flowing. So now we've set the historical stage in the first verse and a half. Next, I want you to notice the vocational setting, the vocation or occupation or job that John had as one of God's prophets. Luke says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. We don't know a whole lot about John until this point. He'd been living in obscurity out in the wilderness for 30 years we know that his mom and dad, Elizabeth and Zachariah, they were old at the time he was born, so they're, they're certainly gone by now. But then out of nowhere, as it were, Luke says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Got to keep in mind, it's been 400 years since God's people have heard from God directly. We call this the intertestamental period. From the end of the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, 400 years have happened. And so it's important to note that Luke uses language here that any good Jew is going to recognize because all of the prophets are introduced in this same way. Whether you're talking about Malachi or Isaiah, Zechariah, they're all introduced with that, the word of the Lord came to. So Luke is setting us up. We know what's going to happen next. So next I want to move on to the geographical setting of this time. The word of, the God, word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke, in this so simple phrase, is sharing a lot. He's alerting us to the fact that John was not part of the religious establishment, the political establishment, the social establishment. No, he didn't go to the Ivy League schools. He didn't party on Friday nights with the in crowd in Jerusalem. No, far from that. We know he was living in a remote and barren place. His diet consisted of what he could forage off the land, locusts and wild honey. He wore skins, no doubt, from animals that he had killed for food and clothing. But friends, it was in this setting, not the Jewish high priesthood, not in the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but out in the wilderness that God calls his prophet to begin the work of bringing the Messiah on the scene. The final setting we're going to talk about today, theological setting. And it says of John, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was proclaiming to the Jewish people that God forgives sinners. To us today, we go, well, yeah. That's the gospel message. God forgives us. That's how come we're able to go before God in prayer and praise, to be here in worship, to not worry about him striking us down with lightning or something like that. God forgives sinners. But friends, this was a strange message to the Jewish people of the time. God forgives sinners? They were astonished. 
Because these people thought they were pretty good. They didn't think they were sinners. They thought that the things that they did prevented them from being called sinners. They thought that they were doing all the right things. They thought that they had their religion. They thought they were on good terms with God. They thought that the Gentiles, those outside of God's promises and plans, those outside of the religious establishment, the Gentiles, they're the ones that they had things to worry about. But John said, uh-uh. He basically came and said, you think you're right with God, but you're not. You think you just need to try a little bit harder at doing the right things, at following all the rules. You need to work a little bit harder, and then God will accept you fully. But that's not how it works. You think your religion counts for something, but it doesn't. You think that being an ancestor of Abraham, or Abraham being your ancestor, you think that means something? No. You need to recognize that all of your righteous works, all of those things that you're doing because you think that's the way to go, all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You need to recognize that unless you repent, you're going to perish in eternal hell forever. Further, John preached, and when you repent, God will forgive you. I shared a few weeks ago during confirmation class, I told the students that because God is perfect, he can't be party to, he can't be connected to anything that is not perfect. God cannot be in a relationship with us, with you and me, because we're not perfect. Uh-oh, where does that leave us? I saw some of the students' eyes get a little bit big. It was obvious that this was something they hadn't taken to heart before. We imperfect people cannot be in communion or community with God. That's the law. That is the very essence of the law. And that's where we would be if it weren't for Jesus. But we know what Jesus did for us. He lived the perfect life that we cannot. He died the death, once and all atoning for all of our sins, past, present, future. And the Holy Spirit coming and living in us, beginning our faith, maturing our faith. And of course, God the Father sending Jesus to be with us, forgiving us for our sins on account of what Jesus did for us. That, my friends, is the gospel. And that was John's message. He says the good news of the gospel is only good news for those who repent. The gospel is not simply about having faith in Jesus. That is necessary, but it also includes repentance. What do we do because we have faith in Jesus? We follow what Jesus would have us do, and that is repentance. Repentance, or metanoia in the Greek, is turning completely around from what my human nature would have me do and turning right back towards God and what he would have me do. I came across this phrase and I love that I had to reuse it here. Repentance is recognizing that you no longer want to have anything to do with your sin. It's realizing and making a choice that you no longer want to have anything to do with where your human nature is leading you. And for people in the Christian church today all around the world, we need to remind ourselves of this day by day and minute by minute. That it's because of Jesus and my faith in Jesus that allows me to be in communion with God. That allows me to be able to pray to God, to talk to God, to ask him for things and know that he will answer. So my friends, we need to get ready. 
not only in Advent time, getting ready for Christmas, but we also need to get ready for the final coming of Jesus. We need to get ready for the coming of baby Jesus in a manger, but we also need to get ready for him coming down with trumpets, with his angel armies on that final judgment day. Friends, Luke has set the stage for us just in a very few short verses. He's gotten us as ready as he could from 2,000 years ago. So the next step, the next step is up to you and me. I want to tell you, I want to challenge you to, over these next few weeks as we wrap up Advent, take that next step in your faith journey. Fill out that stewardship pledge card. Be thinking seriously about what 2022 means to you and your relationship with your church and your relationship with other Christians, your relationship with God, and how you are going to build on what you already have. Stay committed to hearing the word preached, both law and gospel, in truth. Be committed to the fellowship and committed to supporting your church in all of our various needs. Continue to be a part of Zion Lutheran Church so that we can go out into the world, into the Hopkins community and further, and change lives. That's what we're to be about. Our great commission is to go out and change lives. Lives that don't have hope today can have hope tomorrow because of what we do in the community. I ask these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.